One test. There we go. Good morning. So good to see everybody today. I'm telling you, I was telling the early service this morning, the 30 service, because it's like this one too. I believe God's doing something in the men in this church because uh, uh, traditionally Mother's Day is one of the highest attendance day of the year. Because uh, you ask mom, what do you want for Mother's Day? Well, I want my whole family to be at church together. And so they all come to church, and then it comes to Father's Day. It tends to be one of the lowest attendance days of the year. Because they're like, Dad, what do you want? I just want to be left alone in a boat or in my recliner or something like that. And so it's usually low attendance days. But apparently God's doing something in the men here because this is a good turnout for Father's Day. So good job, men. And I know you're not here because you think God's going to curse you if you miss, or you're not here so that you will catch that big bass later today because that's not how we teach God works here. So I'm just glad you're here because you want to be here, right? All right. Uh, a couple things to let you know about. Uh, update on Chris Kenner. Continue to pray for him. Uh, if those of you who don't know, he had a big uh, seizure around 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, yesterday, rushed him to the hospital here. Results showed nothing abnormal, so they took him to Tyler. He's at ETMC there. Uh, got an update this morning from one of his daughters. It said the nurse called this morning at 3 and said he's resting and still sedated to keep him sleeping, but that after they got back from MRI last night and he was trying to wake lots more, wake, wake up, and follow, following commands, giving a thumbs up, etc., and he's definitely moving in the right direction. They will have an MRI results later today. So uh, just keep him in prayer. Uh, I'll let you know, too, that uh, services for Brandy Mosley are going to be here um, next Saturday at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, so continue to pray for that family. Some of you, if you're in this service, you may not have known that for the past few months she was coming here to ET. She was coming by herself every Sunday at the 8.30 service. And uh, so, anyway, if you'd like to be a part of that, it's going to be next Saturday. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles turned there. This is the next part in the Truth of It All series. And the title of this message is The Spirit Seals. And uh, somebody came up to me earlier and said when they read the title, they thought that I was going to be talking about the animals uh, spirit seals, and like I don't know what a spirit seal is, but this is the the verb form of it. The spirit, it's the work that the Holy Spirit does in sealing us. This is not uh, cheerleaders for a football team called the seals. You know, spirit seals. It's not. Um, I'm not going to tell you who told me that. I told him I was going to keep that in my pocket in case I needed leverage later. So. Uh, Anyway, the Spirit seals, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, picking up where we left off last week. We're going to start in verse 11, so let's all stand together in honor of God's Word. It says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. 
Let's pray. God, I just am amazed every time I look into your word and see the amazing truths that are found there. Um, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth here for what it is. Lord, I know that sometimes Paul's letters can be a little confusing confusing in these long sentences and, and things like that. So, Lord, I pray that you would break through the, any confusion and misunderstanding. And, Lord, just let us see truth. And leave here different because we've been changed by it. Jesus, it's all for your glory. And in your name we pray this. Amen. Two weeks ago I told you that the first half of the first chapter of Ephesians contains not only some of the most awe-inspiring truths about what it means for us to be in Christ, but also some of the deepest doctrine as you will find anywhere else in Scripture. And if you're not really sure what that means, doctrine is simply a particular set of beliefs or teachings. Doctrine is what primarily distinguishes different church denominations from one another. If you were to take the vast majority of evangelical churches, regardless of what denomination they were, and even a lot of the more ecumenical churches... Um, you take Methodist, Baptist, Church of God, Church of Christ, Assembly of God, Episcopal, Presbyterian, uh, many non-denominational churches. If you put them all together, what you would find is that we all pretty much agree on the fundamentals of Christianity. That God sent his son to die on a cross to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead three days later and all who trust in him are made right with God and receive His Spirit. That's what we all pretty much agree on. But what makes all these churches different and separates them into denominations is the different doctrine that each one has regarding these fundamentals. Jesus died on a cross for sin, but was it for all of mankind or was it just for the elect? Is salvation all God's doing, or do we play a part to where it falls on us in some way too? Does God choose us for salvation, or do we choose God? Is salvation a secure thing, or is it something that you can lose? Does the Holy Spirit come into someone the moment of salvation, or is that a separate event? Is baptized Is baptism, water baptism, required to be saved, or is it something that we do because we are saved? Are the gifts of the Spirit that we read about in Acts still valid and useful for today, or did they go away with the apostles? How a church answers these types of questions and teaches them is that church's doctrine. Now, fortunately, most of these churches, we've taken kind of the the attitude that we're all just going to agree to disagree on these things, but not let that cause any more division among us than just the fact that we go to different churches. We still consider one another brothers and sisters in Christ. Unfortunately, there are some who think so highly of their particular doctrine that they don't consider anyone else a Christian that doesn't believe the same way that they do. It makes you wonder, how can there be so many different beliefs if we're all reading the same Bible? And that's a good question. 
And you'd think that because of that, that our beliefs would be a whole lot more similar rather than as diverse as they are. But when you get right down to it, there are many doctrines that claim to be biblically based. But when you get right down to it, that's true to just only a certain extent. I mean, there are some doctrines that are based more on emotion and personal experience than on anything that the Scripture says. Others come from more of a historical tradition, as in, I believe this way because this is the way my denomination has always believed, regardless of what the Bible may say about it. There are some who do base their beliefs on Scripture, but their interpretation of of most texts comes from just a surface reading of it rather than digging in and finding out what is actually going on there. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. In Hebrews 6, 4, it says, Those who have tasted of the good word of God and have fallen away, it is impossible to bring them to repentance again. Now, on the surface, it seems pretty obvious that that's talking about the possibility that we can lose our salvation. But when you look at it closer and within the whole context that everything that is written before and after that, and look at the specific words that are used in that text, you'll discover that it's actually, that's not what it's saying at all. And then to say that it does completely disregards all other texts in Scripture that clearly says that you can't lose your salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't take anything in the Bible on, on the surface of, of what we read there. For the vast majority of Scripture, you can. But there are some texts that require a bit more digging. And how do you know whether it needs to be dug into more or not is if usually if you run across something that seems to completely contradict some other truth. God never contradicts himself. And so if it appears that there is something there that does that, then you need to dig in and find out what actually is being said there. The thing is, those who tend to have a higher view of Scripture and take it, I guess, more seriously or whatever um, and throw out all those other reasons for their doctrine tend to have a closer doctrine, more in line with one another. It's those who don't base anything on tradition or experience or emotion, but just look closely at the, the Scriptures. They do tend to be more in line with one another when it comes to doctrine. Um, I've been involved in churches from one end of the denominational spectrum to the other, and I have bought into and believed the different doctrines that each of those churches I was involved in taught. Because if you don't study the scriptures for yourself, any doctrine sounds pretty plausible. No reason not to believe it if you're not reading your Bible. It wasn't until God really instilled in me a passion for his word and I began studying things on my own that I realized some of these things that I had believed before didn't line up with scripture at all. I guess one good thing about being involved in so many different churches is that I didn't feel a special affinity or obligation to one particular denomination. And so if I came across something in Scripture that didn't line up with a particular doctrine that I'd believed before, then I had no problem disregarding that because I didn't feel like I was, you know, betraying my heritage or anything like that. But for some people, that does become an issue. Um, Of course, there are many who I hear that will say, well, let's just 
forget about doctrine and just focus on Jesus. Well, that sounds good, but you can't talk about Jesus unless you're talking about doctrine because the doctrine that you believe has everything to do with what you believe about Jesus. It has everything to do with how you view God, how you view yourself in relation to him, and how you view your salvation. And so it is important, but we should never be so proud of our doctrine that we allow it to cause these deep divisions within the body or allow it to to cause pride to creep into us where we're thinking we're all high and mighty and we're the only ones that are right and everybody else is wrong. One of the things about being a non-denominational church is that they are usually made up of people that come from many different denominational backgrounds and so they believe in many different doctrines. And so in a church like ours, doctrine becomes very important because if it's not, then it lends itself to all kinds of confusion within the body and nobody really being on the same page. For 60 years, E.T. was denominational. It was part of the denomination of the Assemblies of God, which holds to what is called more of an Arminian theology or doctrine. But when we became non-denominational sometime around the mid-90s, we started getting people coming in here that came from these different beliefs and doctrines, some from the opposite end of the spectrum, from more of a Reformed theology. And so for many years, E.T. never defined what it believed about these different issues. And so there was a time in this church where you could go into one Sunday school class and hear a strong stance being taught and taken on one particular doctrinal issue and then go into the class right next door to it and hear the exact opposite thing being taught. Now, I think it's okay for us to disagree about things and to debate and chew and dissect, and and I love doing that with Scripture. But if it's something that's being taught from the leadership of the church, that's not a good thing. Because that can lead to all kinds of confusion, especially among new Christians and nobody being on the same page. And so when I first became pastor, I went to the elders and I said, I think that we really should define how we stand on some of these different doctrinal issues that keep coming up within this particular church. They agreed, and so we identified five or six things that we felt like we needed to to take a stance on, and we said, okay, for a a month or so, we're just going to go away individually, and we're going to lay aside any preconceived notions that we had had about this before, and we're going to dig into the scriptures individually to see what we how we feel about these things. And so that's what we did. And then at the end of that time, we all came together in something that I just, it blew me away. It was so neat that all these men came together and there wasn't one disagreement on anything that they had found in the scripture on these different topics. As a matter of fact, there was a couple of them who had believed a certain way on some of these for whatever reason, but after actually studying the scriptures for this for themselves, They discovered that what they had believed didn't line up with Scripture. But doing that brought us all together. Uh, You can go on the church website right now, and at the top there where it says what we believe, you can read about those different things that we defined and how we came to those conclusions scripturally. But that is our church's doctrine. The whole point of all this is that 
I mean, it's amazing how unified people can be when they actually take God's Word serious and start studying and digging into it. But unfortunately, instead of putting a lot of weight on that, uh, many people today aren't reading their Bibles at all, much less studying them because we're so busy now. We don't have time. And so what we have done in replace of the integrity of Scripture is that we have put more weight on our favorite TV preacher, on our favorite book, whatever book is popular at the time, on tradition. And what's becoming more and more of a thing now is that we're putting most of the weight on how we feel about it. This is how I feel about this, regardless of what Scripture might actually say. And then when you do that, then doctrine is all over the place. Here in the first chapter of Ephesians, we find, like I said, lots of good doctrine. Two weeks ago, we looked in the verse 3 and verses around that where Paul is just talking about the doctrine of election. Last week, it was... Uh, redemption and the doctrine of complete and total forgiveness. All throughout this chapter, what we keep seeing over and over again is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. That means it's His will that is the determining factor in events that go on in the world and in our lives more so than our own free will. It doesn't mean we don't have free will. It means that our free will doesn't trump His ultimate will. It means that nothing happens in this world without first being sifted through his hands. And verse 11 here could not be any stronger or clearer on that. Let's look at it closer here. First of all, verse 11 starts out saying, In him we have obtained an inheritance. That means exactly what you would think an inheritance means. That everything that belongs to the father belongs to his kids. We have an inheritance in the Father. Now, just think for a minute. If you suddenly and surprisingly found out that you are a long-lost relative of Bill Gates and that your relation to him now entitled you to a large inheritance in his estate, would that be good news? Yes, it would. Don't pretend like it wouldn't be. It would be good news. Well, in Jesus, you have an even greater inheritance than that because you know what? Being in him means that you have a father who owns Bill Gates' stuff. (laughs) The world is his and all that it contains is what Scripture says. But the inheritance that Paul is talking about isn't merely monetary or material. In fact, if we really knew what all is involved in the spiritual inheritance that we have in Christ, material things and money would not be as valuable to us as we make it now. I mean, it would be so anticlimactic if we really knew what we had in Christ. I mean, we can see this in the fact that gold, one of the most precious Elements in this world so valuable that people have given their lives in pursuit of it. It's what we look at as a status symbol of success and wealth for those who have more of it. But God uses it in heaven as pavement. John describes the streets of gold 
that he sees there in heaven. And so gold that we consider so precious and valuable in this world in light of God's riches is nothing but asphalt. Our inheritance in Christ is far greater than any material inheritance we can ever hope to get in this world. But how can we be confident of that inheritance? How can we know for sure that we will receive it? I mean, what if we do something that upsets God so much that he revokes that inheritance and we lose it? I mean, just how guaranteed is our inheritance in Christ? Well, the very next line answers that for us. Because we have been predestined according to his purpose. We can be confident and assured of that inheritance because a long time ago, God decided that you would have it. Your inheritance in Christ is part of his purpose in you. And when God purposes something, it never fails to come about. Never. The last line of verse 11 has just so much incredible meaning. And if it's true, then it changes a lot of things for some of us. And I don't know of another phrase in Scripture that shows just how sovereign and in control God really is. He says that he works all things after the counsel of his will. How do we know that nothing happens in this world without first being sifted through God's hands? Because he works all things after the counsel of his will. His will, not ours. Well, what things? How many things? All things. Well, surely he's just talking about the good things, right? No, all things. All means all. Now, I know that for some of you, that's going to bring up some pretty difficult questions and say, if that's true, then, and your mind goes everywhere, especially considering all the bad things that we encounter and horrific things that go on in this world. But what the aspect of it that I want to focus on here today is this, that that right there should be the most comforting thought to Christians that God works all things after the counsel of his will. Because although it sure does seem like it, we do not live in a world of randomness and happenstance. Things are not near as chaotic as they appear to be. Why? Because God works all things after the counsel of his will and he is moving events around the world and around your life to line up with his ultimate purposes. You and I are not left to the whims and waves of chaos and chance. We are guided and directed by a loving Father who is directing each step that we take. Scripture says, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. He has a purpose for each of his children. And nothing in this world. He will not allow anything to happen that might keep his purpose from being fulfilled. Like I've said before, and 
when I first said this, there were some who kind of freaked out about it. But think this. If that's true, if that is true, then it means we are immortal in this world until God says it's time. We're immortal until he says it's time. I did a whole sermon on why that's true. I'm not going to get into all that again today. But I believe that God wants us to believe that and have that mentality because it should motivate us to live the life that he has called us to with absolute total abandon. Total abandon without being held back by any kind of fear. We can take huge risks for the kingdom of God. What it means is that if God calls you to go witness to members of ISIS on the front lines in Syria, that you can do that and be assured that he's not going to allow even anything there to happen that's not part of his purpose in you. It will not be a suicide mission if God's purpose for your life doesn't include getting your head cut off in Syria. He's going to ensure that even in that kind of environment, his purpose is going to be fulfilled. But let's apply it to something a bit more practical here. It means that you can pick up a hitchhiker to share the gospel to without fearing that it's a danger to you and this is some mass murderer, then you're the next victim. Because if God's purpose in you is not to be killed by this mass murderer, then he's not a danger to you at all. And in the flip side of that is, if it is part of his purpose for you, his divine wisdom somehow thinks that this is the best way of fulfilling his great purposes. So the bottom line is, I know that might sound weird, But if God truly is a sovereign God and he truly fulfills his purposes in us, then no matter what we do, it is a win-win. Am I wrong? I don't believe so. I mean, I believe that lines up with what we see here in Scripture. It lines up with things that Jesus did because it also means that we can go and lay hands on and love on someone that might have an infectious disease without fearing that somehow that's going to interrupt God's purpose in our life. Because look what Jesus did. He went around laying hands on, touching the untouchable, the lepers in that society who are considered untouchable because their disease was so contagious. Why did Jesus not hesitate to do that? Because the Father's purpose for him was not to die by leprosy, but to die by the curse of our sin. And so he could go lay hands on anybody he wanted to without fear that that was going to keep the Father's purpose from being fulfilled. And we can live just as fearless. I'm telling you, folks, Christians should be the most fearless people on earth. Sadly, too many of us are just dying of boredom because we're not taking any risks for the kingdom. And it's sad and because our hearts were created 
for exhilaration and something much bigger than most of us have resigned ourselves to. And we wonder why we have to be so highly medicated. Let's continue on in the text. We're going to skip verse 12 for just a minute, and we'll, we'll be coming back to it at the end. But let's go to verse 13. It says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Last week we learned that this whole first part of Ephesians 1 here, Paul is describing the role of each person of the Godhead and, and how the role that they play in our salvation. And he says that the Father chooses, the Son redeems, and in here in verse 13, the Spirit seals. Now I just love that phrase, sealed in him. There are two definitions for the word that Paul used here uh, for seal, and both definitions apply to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The first definition means to set a mark upon. A king would often put his seal on a document or a letter in order to authenticate that that document comes from him or that it had his approval. The Christians that Paul wrote this letter to in Ephesus knew exactly what it meant when they read this word because the Roman Empire that ruled the known world at that time made great use of the official seal. I'm sure you've probably seen this in movies, how when there was a, a document to be sent or, or opened up on certain occasions or a letter, when they would fold it over and at that fold where the paper came together, they would pour melted wax on there and then put a stamp in that wax, the official seal, and, and, and then send it on its way. Only the one that the letter or the document was addressed to was allowed to break that seal. Breaking an official seal of the king or another government was a crime that was punishable by death. This is what happened in the case of Jesus' tomb. When Matthew 27 says that a seal was set on the stone, what that meant was that they took some melted wax and poured it on the stone in such a way that once it dried, if anyone moved the stone, it would break that seal. And if anyone broke it, then they would be put to death for doing that. That's how desperate they were to make sure that nobody stole Jesus' body. Now, apply that to how we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God's mark on us that authenticates our salvation and that we belong to Him. We cannot break or remove that seal the only one that could break the seal is the one who set the seal, but he's not going to do that. And the reason is because the only thing that could cause him to break or remove that seal is sin. And if you already had the seal of the Holy Spirit, what happened to your sin? It was dealt with on the cross. This goes back to the total and complete forgiveness that we talked about last week. Because forgiveness is something that we already have in Christ, that means there is no sin that would cause the seal of the Holy Spirit to be removed. First point, if you're following along there in your notes, your salvation is secure for eternity 
because you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then the very next point, sin cannot break the seal because it was paid for at the cross. The other definition of seal is to secure, as in to seal something shut. How many of you do any canning? Anybody can food? We are just now getting into the canning season as many gardens are starting to to come ripe. Uh, We usually can tomatoes every year in my house, but canning is an illustration that paints a perfect picture of salvation. What's the first thing you do in the canning process? You first have to clean and sterilize the jars. Why do you do that? Just so your jars can be all pretty? You can have a bunch of clean, pretty jars sitting on the counter? No. You clean them because you intend to put something into those jars. And if you don't clean out all the impurities, then the food that you put in there is going to go bad. This is what the cross of Jesus was for. We are the jars that God cleaned of all unrighteousness. Why? Just so God could have a bunch of clean people walking around? No, because he intended to put something in there. And he's not called the loving spirit. He's not called the powerful spirit or the peaceful spirit. He is primarily called the Holy Spirit. Holy means perfect, pure, spotless. And he cannot inhabit anything that isn't as equally holy as him. And so Jesus went to the cross to make us holy. We can't make ourselves that clean. Jesus has to be the one to do it for us, and that's what he did at the cross. Next point. Salvation isn't just the forgiveness of sin. It is also the imputation of life. We have been given the very life of Jesus. That's why Paul describes salvation in Colossians 1.27 as Christ in you, the hope of glory. And why he said in Galatians 2.20 that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now think about this. The jars that you use for canning are always identified by whatever it is that they are filled with, right? And we have lots of jars at our house. And they're pretty much exactly the same. Out in our shed, we have boxes of empty jars that look just alike, just boxes of jars. But in our pantry, we have something else. In the pantry, we have tomato jars, pickle jars, jelly jars. Before, they were all just jars, but now they are identified with what they've been filled with. And so it is with us. Last point. As Christians, we are identified not by what we do, but by what we are filled with. And then once the jars have been filled, the canning process isn't finished. There's one more thing that needs to be done, and that is the jars need to be sealed. Sealing sealing the jar is what keeps the good things in and the bad things out. Keeps the food from spoiling. The seal of the Holy Spirit keeps the curse of sin from ever infecting you again.
Now, it doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. What it does mean is that sin will never control you like it did before. You will never be under its power like you were before because you have been set free and now have the ability to not sin. Whereas before, you didn't have that ability. It also means that you're not going to spiritually die from the sin because Jesus died in your place. And it means you're no longer going to be judged by it because your sin was judged on the cross and the sentence was carried out. The canning process, cleaned, filled, and sealed. Same as the salvation process, clean, filled, and sealed. Verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And this is yet another reason that we can be assured that that inheritance is yours and will never be lost. I mean, essentially it's saying the Holy Spirit was given as kind of a, a down payment on your inheritance, like a reminder of what is to come, a, a promise ring. You know, some, some girls have a promise ring. It doesn't mean they're engaged. It doesn't mean they're married, but that's the assurance that they will be. You know, that's kind of like the Holy Spirit given to us as a pledge of the inheritance that is ours. And if you can't lose the Holy Spirit, then you can't lose your inheritance. And then now back to verse 12 before we close It says, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. To the end just means that this is the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose for God choosing you, for redeeming you, for forgiving you is the last line in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. He says it again in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is given and we are sealed in him for what purpose? To the praise of his glory. Folks, this is why you and I exist. This is why we were saved, to praise and glorify his name. If you ever wonder what your purpose is in this world, that's it. That's your purpose. Like I've been saying for the last two weeks, God wants us to know these truths and believe them because doing so leads us into pure joy. And then from that joy, just naturally, worship and praise rises up in us that we direct back to God. And it's why doctrine is important. He chose you. He forgave you. He redeemed you. He sealed you. And he holds your destiny tightly in his hand. It's all his doing So that all the praise, all the credit, all the glory can go to him and him alone. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your your promises to us. Lord, that everything we read here, for those of us who belong to you, God, these aren't options. These aren't possibilities. These are promises that we can be assured of, that we can stand on. And Lord, once again, I pray that you would just open someone's eyes to the truths that 
that you reveal here through your word. Lord, for those that have been bound up in one thing or another, God, I pray that you would give them the key to unlock whatever it is that's binding them. Lord, your word says that it's truth that sets us free. So if truth sets us free, then it's error that binds us up. And so, Lord, I pray that you just replace any error that we may have been hanging on to, that you would replace that with your truth. And that be what unlocks us into your freedom. Lord, I pray for those in here that you are just bringing to new levels of trust in you. Lord, there's no greater place that we can be in our relationship with you than to be able to just fully and completely trust you. No matter what things may look like to us. Lord, I pray for the one in here who does not know you. The one who has not been sealed and marked by your spirit. Lord, I'm asking you to open their eyes to the truth. Draw them to you. Change them for eternity. That you would grow your kingdom. That you would grow your family. Even in this church. Holy Spirit, I've been talking a lot about you this morning. And I would just ask you to do what you do best. Have your way in the remainder of this time among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.